Welcome to Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast. Learn firsthand from business owners who built successful ABA businesses. Utilize proven techniques and strategies to help your practice thrive. This is Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast with Jonathan Mueller. My name is Jonathan Mueller, and I am the host of Building Better Businesses in the ABA podcast. And my guest today is Amanda Mandy Ralston, um, who's been certified as a behavior analyst since 2001. A self-described recovering entrepreneur, uh, Mandy's founded not one but two ABA organizations and has served as a subject matter expert uh, to international work groups, panels related to behavior analysis, ethics, and practice. Mandy, my friend, welcome to the pod. Hey, Jonathan, it's good to see you. <laughs> I like that you are doing the uh, victory sign, um, waving your two, whole, clasping your two fists and moving them left and right. Um, my mom taught me that every time she won a card game going back to when we were young, she would do that exact same thing. So you just brought back all kinds of memories, dude. <laughs> awesome. Amazing. Right off the bat. I, um, so, Mandy, I, uh, you're a fan of the Oxford comma. Is this true? It is true. I, I feel like it, it clears some things up, right? Like it, if you don't have that, that last comma in there, then you, you can misconstrue all kinds of information, especially in reading when you don't get tone and body language as some kind of uh, context to what's going on. So it's like if I say um, I really admire my parents, comma, Cher, comma, and David Sedaris, comma, that's pretty clear. But if you don't have that third comma in there, then suddenly it's like, I admire my parents, Cher and David Sedaris, and that sounds like they're my parents. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that is super thoughtful. I'm gonna give it to you. Um, I'm also gonna counter with, we are like over in our society and our writing, and which is the reason I'm not a fan, but I'm, I'll quote Vampire Weekend for any Vampire Weekend fans out there. They have a song that, that goes, who gives a fuck about an Oxford comma? And I'm totally in their boat. I hear you. But we can still be friends, I think, Mandy. <laughs> I'm a fan of uh, uh, Vampire Weekend. So I, I think we've we've found a good Venn diagram to exist in there. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. Perfect. Did you ever, I mean, this is, the, I don't even know. They, they, they're not, I don't think they teach this to my kids in schools these, day, these days. But like E.B. Strunk and White was like my Bible style guide, like in high school and college. Did you have a style guide? Uh, well, ironically, my style guide that I used was the AP style, um, which is anti-Oxford mm -hmm. comma, right? So this the, the, the Oxford comma is totally personal preference. It's it's not been something that's been, you know, pedantic, beaten to my head. So <laughs> I, I love it. You're a flexible and creative and open-minded thinker. Um, just one of the many reasons. I love you, Mandy. I <laughs> You describe yourself as like a recovering entrepreneur, and I really like this. Um, but I'm curious, like, what parts of entrepreneurship do you feel like you're you most needed to recover from? Well, I say recovering entrepreneur in the in the spirit of like uh, the addictive quality of entrepreneurship, right? That you're sort of always in recovery if you are an entrepreneur. Um, and so trying not to let some of those uh, inclinations and behaviors get the better of you, you know, the, the constant go, 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 the being on all the time, the, uh, the imposter syndrome, the not sleeping enough, 
um, you know, playing chess on six different boards at the same time, essentially, <laughs> you know, it's, being an entrepreneur is literally building the plane as you fly. And uh, it's because nobody else has done it quite what you're doing right now, then you're literally making half of the stuff up. Um, and it, 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 it's a little bit maddening. So, uh, so yeah, I think mm. re recovering entrepreneur is about trying to learn from your mistakes um, and continue to do better moving forward, but, but not letting that, that entrepreneur uh, voice get the better of you, I suppose. So. That, that's, that's well said. I, um, part of being an entrepreneur involves taking lots of risks. And so I, I, my, I, and I haven't seen any data published on this, but my sense is entrepreneurs are slightly more wired toward risk taking, but I don't know. Have you found that in your case and like that the, the, the quote unquote risk taking entrepreneurial behavior generalizes, uh, or shows up in the rest of your life? Yeah. Uh, there was a Forbes article that I found a long time ago about entrepreneurs and their mental health and some of their, uh, proclivities. I'll have to dig that up somewhere, but it's funny. I, I'm not really a risk taker outside of my entrepreneurship, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm very concerned with doing the right thing, <laughs> right. And following the rules and not being in trouble and, and all that kind of business, which I, I'm still the same about my business. Um, uh, for the most part, you know, it's like, I, I want to do it right. I want to be in compliance with all the applicable laws and regulatory bodies, but also, uh, you know, there's the fine line of not, towing the line to the status quo. And in order to innovate, you have to break some rules to get to the other side. So um, it's a fine balance. It's calculated risk, right? Mm, calculated risk sounds appropriate. Well, like, tell me about this like calculated risk and entrepreneurial journey. Um, you found it, I mean, it's extraordinary. You found it two different ABA providers and like going way, way back, but um, verbal behavior consulting, um, you, you spent 12 years there as founder and um, what did you learn most from that journey? Um, gosh, I don't know. I, I feel like that's an entire talk show of its own. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, you're constantly having to reinvent your idea of what success is going to look like because it never stops. Right. Like I, I thought I was only going to grow to like, 10 employees. I said I was never going to get any bigger than 25 employees. And then by virtue of the fact that you've got all of these families that need services, <laughs> you know, essentially beating down your door, uh, you're just like, well, I, I don't have any other choice. I'm going to have to keep growing it so that there's there's more services available. And I, I don't regret growing, uh, but I think I learned lots of lessons about um, having a controlled plan to do so, uh, being uh, very conscious about having the right amount of capital around growing uh, to that degree, because we, we exploded after the insurance mandate was passed here in Kentucky. And, uh, and it was really, really difficult between 2017 and 2019 with lots of changes going on in the industry at the same time. So, um, yeah, I don't. I don't have any regrets about uh, all the choices, but I, I did. I did get some pretty expensive lessons. So, yeah, <laughs> expensive lessons, and I think what what 
maybe those outside or haven't yet been entrepreneurs don't fully appreciate is that, I mean, not only are you running a business, providing amazing services to families and you're focusing on your team and doing revenue cycle and yada, yada, all this stuff. But it's like you're, unless you get outside funding, it's your personal capital at stake. And that's, that's okay when you're small, but there's a certain point at which you get to, and you're just like, dude, I mean, like, and who knows what happens, right? A payer doesn't pay, decides not to pay for three months. And then you're like, I'm going to miss payroll. Yeah. And, and that's the, the, the level of like risk and investment as you get larger, just like it almost, it, it feels like it doesn't just grow. It grows by like orders of magnitude. Yes. And that can be a scary part of like that, just that access to capital. Um, that could be a scary part of entrepreneurship. Absolutely. Uh, it just, it feels different. It's a different gravity at, at that level. Right. Um, and it's lots of people's lives. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a pretty heavy burden to, to, to carry and you, you have to have, um, just a, a right amount of, uh, craziness, I think, to, to undertake it, honestly. So. I think you're exactly right that like there, there's, there's a, there's an appropriate amount of cray that comes <laughs> with being an entrepreneur. I, um, speaking a little bit of cray, uh, you're a data geek and, you know, I, um, I've always found that data is sexy and it's just extraordinary. And um, and you've worked in clinical intelligence and decision making and you know algorithmic stuff and things that I can't even like pretend to understand, Mandy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what um, like how do these kinds of tools um, how do they help improve clinical quality for the kiddos we serve? Well, it's uh, as one of my friends uh, has said before, and I repeat this often, it's the road to hell is paved with data you never look at, right? So, <laughs> like, if you're not actually looking at all the data revolving around all the different decisions and um, impact points that you have in your business or your clinical services or your finances or whatever, if you're not looking at the data, uh, you're not fully informed, right? And so, mm. um, yeah, I mean, there's, we're in the, the age of information at this point, right? It's just like everybody has access to computers and internet, and uh, you can learn to code by taking a six-week course, and you can learn about data analytics, you know, to a, a small degree within, you know, six months on this course and that and the other. And it's like, we're just exploding with the ability to munge uh, insights from all the data that's floating around us and to to uh, extrapolate that data from other sources and cross-reference it and cross-pollinate it and find out how it's going to actually improve um, our living, right? So better living through behaviorism, better living through data. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I, I, I've completely lost track of what the original question was as I'm like sitting over here searching for words. Um, how do I think it's going to impact uh, our, our particular field. Well, I, th- I think we'll finally start making some good choices and really get down to understanding what are best practices and what are standards of practice, because frankly, we don't really mm. have them at the moment, at least not an agreed upon, uh, group of them. At least that's, that's my assessment of the field right now. You know, it's like you can't get people to decide on how it is that we come up with an intensity of services right? You, you can get 20 mm-hmm. different behavior analysts here in the same room and present them with one client and everybody's looking at that one client and you say, okay, to begin with, what assessment do you want to use? And everybody will have a different answer and they'll have a different set of logic as to why they came up with that answer, right? 
And so it's like, until we can get to the point that we actually can have some kind of convergence around, given similar sets of data, we make similar conclusions about what kind of clinical decisions to make. Then I think we can actually talk about the effectiveness of our interventions as, as an aggregate. Mm. Is this maybe like similar to, like, I don't know if I, I would imagine if I, God forbid, got cancer and I went to see an oncologist, I, I'm probably not going to, and I'll get, you know, two or three opinions. I'm not going to get like super wildly different recommendations, right? Like that's, yeah. I mean, they're, they'll be fairly consistent. That's and right. I think that's what happens in most medical practice. So is this a function of just like our, our field continuing to mature? And or is it like is truly like a, the huge gap here, the ability to bring lots of data to bear to inform per a certain outcome framework what that a, 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 a treatment regimen should be? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Uh, in my last couple of years of building clinical decision support systems, you know, trying to put forth some kind of thesis about how you actually come to th these types of decisions, especially around treatment intensity, right? I, I was met frequently with questions about, well, where'd you come up with that? Like, there's no research for, uh, you know, what intensity of services to give a child that's over eight, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And it's like, I know we don't have the research, but how are we going to test it if we don't try it? You know, so the, it's literally we've got mm -hmm. to fuck around and find out a little bit and look at our data and say, well, what happens yeah. <laughs> when we give somebody 35 hours a week? You know, because I, I hate hearing, you know, stuff about, well, after a certain age, uh, intensive intervention is no longer effective. Right. You've, have you heard that frequently? It, oh, ab absolutely. Yeah. Except except in case maybe like severe problem behaviors. But yeah, I hear that all the time, especially from payers. Yeah. So if there's this idea of neuroplasticity and that it's no longer effective after age, whatever, yeah, like what are we doing with an entire uh, sector of our field for a, a OBM, right? Like that's applied behavior analysis is just being <laughs> used with adults that, wow. you know, you know, not even presenting with F84.0, right? So don't don't tell me that ABA is not effective after a certain age. Otherwise, we wouldn't have half of the other delineations of focus that we have. So, yeah, I, I get annoyed with that. That's such a great point. It's like, don't our brains develop like until we're, what, 25 or so? Or like you can't rent a car until you're 25 because you're making stupid decisions. I mean, I'm still making stupid decisions at 45. But yeah. to be clear, like, like that idea around neuroplasticity um, is absolutely right, right? So right. where did that come in? Right. Well, and, and again, it's like anybody that suffered any kind of um, brain injury or other type of um, injury in general that requires rehabilitation, right? You have to relearn certain skills. <clears throat> and so it, it's not like they say, well, you, you had a car accident at 45 and, and, and you're not going to be able to relearn any of this information because you're past a certain age. That's that's not correct. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, that's that's one of my many little soapbox issues. Uh, it, it's fascinating. I so the, the the I have heard. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like so, evidence based practice is the intersection of the body of research, a clinician's scope of practice, and the needs of the patient or family. I think it's something like that, right? And like, um, like where does data? Where can we see that fitting in 
to this sense of like evidence-based practice, if that's even the definition. So please push back on that if I'm mischaracterizing. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not sure of the definition of evidence-based practice off the top of my head, like in an academic sense. But it, what you're describing is is what I call like an ethical efficacy model of treatment selection, right? There's there's what's based in mm. evidence, what's in the literature as something that would be an evidence-based practice. There's clinician competency, right? What's in your scope and practice, and what are you actually competent to provide? Mm. And then there's what the environment will support, including client preference, right? and mm. caregiver and, and environmental preference, right? And so choosing the appropriate intervention is an intersection of those three things. Um, and it's an ethical efficacy issue because there is no one correct answer to that situation. You know, if, I, if I'm a practitioner and uh, I get a, a client that is mostly non-vocal and needs to learn how to request items, man training, right? Um, I may have to do an assessment about whether or not they prefer uh, sign language to a communication device to um, some kind mm. of picture selection system, right? Well, maybe I am only trained mm. in sign language. I'm not trained in picture selection systems, right? But then the clients mm. prefer picture selection systems over sign language, right? And then the evidence shows that this. So what becomes the right thing? to do with that client. And that's that's multifaceted and we don't have time to unpack the whole thing, but you have to consider all those things at the same time. So, um, so yeah, I, I think the data may be able to tell us if we're able to collect data on those types of decision-making, what happens when you choose, you know, the thing that is highly preferred in the environment and supported by the environment over practitioner competency is it more effective or is it more effective when you choose what's competent for the practitioner versus a, a second on the list of what is actually supported by the environment? So I, I think the data will tell the story if we start taking the data and we start looking at it. Oh, okay. You're blowing my mind. Holy shit, Mandy. So is there an answer first? Is there an answer to that question? What's better? Like be a little bit outside your scope of practice, but you know there's going to be a better outcome because the client prefers it or vice versa or do we not yet know i don't think we have a clear answer as i want to say that it's, it's so multifaceted because you know maybe the best thing to do maybe uh as an example is to go ahead and start intervention because i'm competent in the thing that i know how to do and wait until i can get additional training or mentorship from somebody else that knows how to do the preferred augmentative system right maybe that's the most appropriate thing to do uh, it just depends. There's so many different factors that go into it, but I think we have to start thinking that way about treatment selection so that it's not just, well, why'd you choose to use the ables? Cause that's what I know. <laughs> right. Well, that's like not an okay answer. <laughs> right. Why, why did you use the violin? Cause that's what the funding source requires. Right. So it, it has to be that intersection of what's best for the client, what's supported in science, and what are you competent in. ABA practice owners, are billing and insurance issues getting you down? Well, let me tell you, Element RCM is your answer. Element provides world-class revenue cycle management services, contracting, credentialing, authorizations, billing, and more. Element's your partner. So you can focus on what you love to do, providing the highest quality services to your families and clients. Element's a preferred partner 
of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, and its founders have nearly 20 years of experience owning and operating successful ABA organizations. They understand you. They know that every dollar counts, that integrity is everything. Element works with any practice management system. And Element's not a vendor, they're your partner. So find out more and take a free revenue cycle assessment at elementrcm.ai. Well, I, I want you in, in just a moment to like actually like take me through what like what these data models look like, right? And like what data points are they capturing, and how is that interacting with other like data sets from the past? Um, and I'll I mean keep it. I'm a luddite, Mandy, so like keep it dumbed down and simple. I mean, I'm 1992. I had my first computer class, and I still can do DOS, man. C colon backslash. And I could create folders and shit. I was like a ninja in the nineties. <laughs> but eh, this, this, so for my simple brain, tell me like how these like databases and the algorithms work. Yeah. So I think the best place to start is to compare the idea of these decision support systems versus decision trees. So with the decision mm. tree, it's it's driving you to a single point, right? So it's binary. Like, did you do this? Yes or no? Yes. Then here. No, then you go over here, right? And then the next question is now, have you done this? Yes or no, down here or over here? All right, so it's driving you through sort of a Pac-Man phase to get to one spot, mm. right? Versus the clinical mm. decision support systems are interactive and what questions they ask you next are uh, predicated on how you answer the previous question but it's not driving you to a singular point. It is populating all of the different considerations that you need to take into account as you are making these treatment decisions, right? So it's saying, okay, this person's telling you uh, that they are eight years old and the things that they're concerned about are uh, food selectivity and being able to go out in the community safely and have dinner at a restaurant. And so, based on that what assessments out there are appropriate for eight years old which of them have something to do with food selectivity have you done a rule out medically that there's nothing wrong with a food you know suck swallow breathe issue here you know so it tells you all mm -hmm. those things that you need to be thinking about it still comes down to clinician acumen and clinician choice it's not going to tell you what to do. It's going to tell you what to think about and how to think about all these things. And I think that's why these tools are going to be important moving forward, because since we have 55,000 uh, behavior analysts currently, and 10 years ago, we only had 10,000, we don't have enough experienced behavior analysts to help mentor and train and supervise this large group of individuals that are coming into the field and need that type of uh, mentorship. So I think one of the, the valuable parts of these clinical decision support systems is a digital mentorship of sorts. And then as a result of all the usership, everybody using those types of tools, you get a bevy of data about what's going on and you can understand where you started and where the outcomes are going. Oh, so are, am I hearing correctly, Mandy, that this, this is like the solution to this extraordinary like labor supply versus like the need client demand imbalance this idea of like digital mentorship through big data 
Oh, I don't, I don't want to sell myself for this stuff as a solution <laughs> just yet. I, I think it's part of, I think it's a stopgap solution. I think what we really need is, um, is a uh, residency, right? We, we need more standardized training. We need specialization mm -hmm. within the field and we need residency, right? We, we should not be expecting first year B BCBAs behavior analysts to come out of the gate to know everything and be good at everything. Mm. Uh, so I think we need to give them the opportunity to say, hey, here's the part of the field that I like best and this is what I want to do and I want to learn more about it and I really want to get good at it uh, mm. rather than rather than putting them in the seat and um, just riding them really, really hard. Yeah. Oh, oh so well said. Yeah. Everything that we could do to create further and invest in whether it's provider level, graduate level in, in, in the academic world, um, better professional development training, um, I, it will go so, so far. But I, um, let me ask you, have you seen the movie Terminator? A uh, long time ago, yeah. Long time ago and yeah. uh, many lists, so I'm probably dating myself here, but um, you remember Skynet, right? This was like the corporation that took over the world. Yeah. Um, at what point are you going to be worried that Skynet is actually real and we're moving toward robots I, taking over? I, I think we're getting closer than I care to admit. I was having dinner with a friend last night and she was telling me about being in Chicago at a restaurant and trying to shazam what the music they were listening to. And she couldn't get it to come up and it's because it's all AI music. Like they what? were playing, they were playing AI music in this restaurant in Chicago. And so it's like, and she, you know, it's actually kind of brilliant because they're avoiding having to pay for royalties by piping this stuff into their restaurant. But at the same time, it's AI music. <laughs> it's just like, what even is what? that? <laughs> yeah. So a, her AI in the Shazam app was trying to interact, not maybe super successfully, with an AI musician. Yep. Holy shit. So we are closer than we thought. <laughs> it's, it's a little disturbing, yeah. Um, it, you know, uh, I, I was I was told once, don't ask questions you don't want to know the answer to. So I'm going to probably have to <laughs> retract my question on that. But it's, well, like, in, in all seriousness, there's been a lot of like um, – dialogue, especially online recently about private equity valuations, um, these high profile instances of families having like really poor service experiences. Like, I, and I'm curious, like, what is this? How do you feel? What does this portend for the future of our fields? Um, and then is there a role that data plays with this? Yeah. I mean, I think a few things are happening. Um, I think we're seeing some very, uh, what's the word I want to use here? Um, we're seeing some stories that are really suboptimal about what's happening for consumers, clients uh, within applied behavior analysis. But those have been there all along, I think because of the critical mass that we're at based on private equity and the size of what's going on at this point, I think we're they're, it's bringing them to the top. You know, it's like we're, we're hearing them more readily, right? Um, I also ha generally have the p opinion that, you know, private equity um, has come into the ABA space and they have tried to scale it in the same way 
nursing and other types of healthcare has been scaled. But what's missing is the standardization of clinical care. <laughs> um, ABA, I think, scales very nicely operationally, right, based on that sort of pyramid of mm -hmm. uh, supervision to techs. Operationally, that works out. Um, clinically, I think we've got a problem to, to solve here about everybody being able to speak the language and same language and, again, come to those similar conclusions given similar information so that people are on the same page as far as treatment decisions go. Uh, well said. I, I love how you looked to other um, areas of healthcare as an analog to this. And that's a good point that I hadn't connected that, you know, other areas by virtue of the fact that they've at least operated, not that the, that the science is any older, but they've operated in a you know, commercial insurance, Medicaid funding environment for much longer. Um, that's just informed how, you know, clinical decision-making and stuff works. I, I mean, is your sense that, um, with everything that's happening, we're going to see heightened regulation because uh, of these headline stories. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're probably we're we're leveling back out. I think there's a reckoning, you know, that's sort of coming with with what's going on in the in the industry in the last couple of years. I think uh, funders are rightly asking questions about what they're paying for. Um, I think the further we get into Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, those regulatory bodies are going to be asking what they're paying for. And, and as taxpayers and citizens, uh, I think, again, that's those are legitimate questions to be asking. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we've got to really focus on getting our conversations down to what are our meaningful outcomes that we are working to produce and how we're going to measure mm -hmm. ourselves to the standards. Mm. Is there, there there are a few different outcome frameworks out there around BHCOE has one, ICHOM work, um, you know, came out with the autism standard sets. There's some others, but is there one that 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 you'd point to and says, ooh, maybe this one's the future? Or what's your sense? We don't have any data yet, right? So I <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. It, 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 a yeah. we don't nobody's got proof that their pudding is right. <laughs> and uh, and secondly, tell me how you decided which of those assessment tools to use like both uh you know the icham framework and, and the bico uh framework they, they have all very good standardized tools within them but how do i select which ones to use again that's 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 the difference between just saying you know here pick from these versus here's the logic behind how you pick from these right mm. so it's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. Well, you you recently started uh, non-binary solutions, which I love the name, by the way. I um, but first question is, did you actually fall off your entrepreneurial wagon? Totally you fell off the wagon. Totally in starting it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's I, like I, I, it's like oh here I go again here no. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about non-binary solutions and uh, and what you all are doing besides trying to cope with this entrepreneurial uh, recidivism. Yeah, uh, yeah. So non-binary solutions hashtag it's not binary because again, uh, making treatment decisions are not binary decisions, right? Again, that that ethical efficacy 
uh, model of decision making, right? Considering three different things at the same time, and there is no one right answer. Uh, you, you do sort of have to f around and find out. Um, and so, again, these clinical decision support systems that I'm making, I'm making custom ones for different providers um, that are widely uh, uh, dispersed across the United States. And what I hope to be able to do is determine from their usership data who's doing what well, right? And then based off what they're doing well, change each of the models so that we get closer to best practice within a single model. Um, and that, that, that's a thing that can go on and on and on and on because as new information and new literature and new research comes to light, we'll have to change our practices, right? So those, those models will be continually updated. I mean, this, this is a lifelong thing. As you learn new information, you change your model. Um, and so that's, that's what I'm really interested in providing as a service to other behavior analysts and therefore to greater impact to the constituents of applied behavior analysis is a systematic way, a standardized way of coming to treatment decisions so that we can then get to a point where we could talk about, I know that it was my independent variable that produced these outcomes for this group of people. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, mm -hmm. that's what I'm hoping for. That's amazing. Like, is there some tipping point in terms of the amount of data that you have that then starts to lead to meaningful conclusions? Totally appreciating your point that the more data you have ongoing is always going to be better. Mm -hmm. But how do you think about that tipping point? Well, okay. So one of the other issues that we have here is that everybody's comparing their quote unquote outcomes data on one uh, ICD-10 code. So F84.0. It's everybody that has autism. What are your outcomes for autism? Well, autism is not a um, homogeneous group of people in the first place. It's a very wide range of people and their needs and their strengths and their skills and so on and so forth. And then to complicate that, you've got individuals that have a diagnosis of autism plus maybe ADHD. Maybe they have some kind of you know, medical comorbidity of some sort. They've got gastro uh, issues. They've got a seizure disorder potentially, right? And so again, you can't compare all those individuals just because they share the one diagnosis code. So you really have to parse out what types of interventions at what intensity in what type of location with what type of staff is effective for this particular group of people. Um, and so with data and machine learning, what you can get to is an understanding of here's how most people uh, respond to this treatment, right, in a trend. And then you have the people that are diverging from that trend. And so that data should then alert you if we know that, generally speaking, people in this group tend to respond in this way, then when you get to a di divergence of some sort from that trend line, that should flag you as a clinician to understand something's different. You need to make mm. some kind of other treatment decisions for this person because they're not responding in the same way that we have been able to predict reliably based on data what should be happening. That's 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 the mm. golden grail, right? Yeah. That's that's a lofty goal. I don't understand many of the difference. Yeah. Well, I, I have no doubt you will get there and you'll amass the data along the way to like make this super meaningful. Help me understand the difference between machine learning and AI, artificial intelligence. 
Um, well, machine learning, uh, I think the best way to think about it is that you have to feed it. And depending on what you feed it, that, that's what it's going to learn from, right? Uh, so if you only feed it Cheetos all the time, it's only going to tell you about how life in Cheeto land is going to be, right? But if you give it a nice balanced diet, it, it's going to produce something different. So uh, the, the, the artificial intelligence, I think, is the notion that it, it then does the thing on its own later on in that growth mm. period. But the machine learning is based off of, again, what you're giving it to think on. Um, and so depending on how diverse the data is that you give it to think on, it'll produce different types of models. Oh, wow. So AI is truly like the Skynet. It's thinking on its own. Um, I, I, uh, I don't know if that's I, correct, I, but that's kind of how I think about it. I have no idea if that's actually accurate with the AI. Well, I just, I got so distracted when you mentioned Cheeto land, like now <laughs> and my mouth is watering and I, I want to go to this Cheeto land. So if, if I have to sacrifice my individuality and be taken over by robots, but I'll be in Cheeto land, I'm fucking, I'm happy. All That's right. good for me. Yeah. Dust, orange dust and all. Right. Um, well, man, what's, what, what's one thing every ABA provider should start doing and one thing they should stop doing? Uh, I think... All behavior analysts, uh, if, if you're doing it, I think the thing that people need to stop doing is stop weaponizing the ethics code, <laughs> right? Like stop throwing daggers at each other about you're doing X, Y, and Z wrong, and I'm going to report you, and that's unethical, and point, 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 you know, sort of outrage and blame culture. Uh, it's not helpful at all. Um, and so what you really need mm. to start doing is to really contextualize people's decisions and their behavior and be compassionate and kind and graceful. Because I promise you, being in a field such as behavior analysis, something like psychology, you are going to be in a rude awakening in about five years, 10 years, 20 years, because what we're doing today is going to be wrong. <laughs> In, in just a little while, mm. our, our practices today will no longer be relevant or considered appropriate in just a few short years. So, mm. so calm down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Spoken like the true Yoda that you are, Mandy. <laughs> um, well, where can people find you online? Oh. Um, you can find me at amandaralston.com. You can find me at nonbinarysolutions.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, if you want uh, pure memory, uh, not for the faint of heart, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, definitely not the professional me there. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit all over the place. Oh my God, I'll drop all those in the show notes. Is, I, know, I know memes don't let themselves to be explained, but do you have a favorite meme of late that you think would translate to listeners? Gosh. No, I can't think of one right off the top of my head. That's that I wasn't prepared for that one. Um I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna go follow you on Facebook because I want to see inappropriate memes. That is sounds right up my freaking alley. Yeah, I get um, I get stuff right. in the grocery store, the coffee shop everywhere. Like people are like, I love your memes. Thank you. It's it's like this <laughs> little weird little obsessive habit I have over coffee every morning is just to go meme hunting and then post them for everybody. So do you know that is a true service to our world, Mandy? And I appreciate that uh, that you're doing that. Are, are you ready for the hot take questions? I think so. Let's find out. 
Here we go. That was not convincing, but I think you are. You're going to crush it. <laughs> You're on your deathbed. What's one thing you want to be remembered for? Uh, being the person that's going to be willing to sit with you alone at the, you know, the cafeteria table. God. It's awesome. Thanks. That hits me here, dude. What's your most important self-care practice? Weightlifting. Mm. Yeah. Get a little strength-based, sweat up, get the anger out. Yeah. <laughs> nice. What's your favorite song? According to my brain, I think it's the Pepto-Bismol jingle that's on TV currently. Yeah. You know, you, I don't think side. I've heard that. Do you care it's to like, sing it? It's like upset stomach diarrhea. You know, it's like that's the the hook right there at the end. And it's like four o'clock in the morning. My brain's like, hey, you want to hear this again? Let's do it. Upset stomach diarrhea. Oh, that's going to be in my brain now forever. Thank you. That's a gift. Yeah. If you if you give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Jeez. Uh um, try to think. I'd probably like take a finance course. I think like demystifying money at that age would have been really flipping helpful. <laughs> take a finance course if you're an 18 year old out there, please, because Wall Street does not want you to understand any of this. Uh, yeah. It's so true. It is so true. Yeah. All right. If you could only wear one style of footwear, what would it be? Um, I've been rocking my nobles for the last couple of years. They're just, uh, they're, they're CrossFit um, tennis shoes that they, they have very little um they're, they're kind of flat so it's like almost like being barefoot but mm. they've got good style to them so i'd say that's my go-to i'm gonna have to try those out mandy it is always a pleasure thank you so much for coming on thank you so much for having me jonathan i, I just i adore all the work that you're doing and i love this podcast and uh i, I really enjoy any time i get to spend with you so thank you right on high fives take care everybody. all right what up, listeners? Hey, I got something for you. If you like my Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast, you're going to love the Behavioral Observations podcast with Matt Sicoria. So I recently met Matt at ABAI, and let me tell you, I was just an instant fanboy. Matt's the real deal. His pod is all about stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. So session 191 on his pod is on the behavior analysis of lying. That's right, lying. How awesome is that? Who does that? He also talks social skills, act, FAs, and so much more. His guests include Greg Hanley, Jonathan Tarbox, and other legendary names in our field. And as a BCBA, you can even get CEU credits through Behavioral Observations. You can find Matt and the Behavioral Observations podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel. Enjoy, friends. Thanks for listening to Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast. 
stay tuned for our next exciting episode. In the meantime, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We value your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on social media at elementrcm.ai.